0: We've got the scoop on big tech's single-digit growth. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined over the airwaves by Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dylan. Fully
1: caffeinated, ready to go.
0: I'm excited that you're caffeinated. We're going to need that caffeine. We have big tech earnings, that means some big reactions. We're going all in on the big companies today because we have results from Microsoft and Alphabet kicking off the run of the tech giants, giving their updates. Tim, that means we're talking cloud, we're going to talk AI, maybe talk a little bit about some leadership changes at these big tech companies. So, you're saying we're playing buzzword bingo, is what, is what we you're have telling to. me. <laughs> yeah, get out your cards, listeners. Uh, it's one of those episodes. Tim, why don't we talk a little bit about Microsoft to kick things off. We have earnings and revenue ahead of expectations for the quarter. Top line grew at 8%, stocks down about 5% since reporting. What's going on there?
1: Well, the the revenue outlook was disappointing, and I put disappointing in air quotes that nobody can see because we're on a podcast. But essentially, Microsoft reported that their next quarter will come in around fifty four point three billion dollars in revenue, and the street was saying, "Wait a minute, we need fifty five billion, so you're seven hundred million short, and so that's problematic." The other piece of this, Dylan, is that. To again play the buzzword bingo card here, Microsoft is going to make bigger investments on the capital expenditure line for AI. They're going to bulk up their Azure capabilities for serving AI use cases. And yeah, that's going to require some investment in hardware, in building out their data centers. And that's not something that investors typically like to see. They want to see more cash coming through the door and less going out the door. And so Microsoft is signaling more is gonna go out the door. And you know, the the market is responding to that. I think we can talk about whether or not that's a rational response.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say the look back for this business when you look at the quarterly earnings update. Really strong, over fifty-six billion in revenue. Growth has been below ten percent for the last couple quarters, Tim. But I I think that's the adjustment that we've had to get used to. But I think that's also where we've been for the last few quarters. I don't know that we can be too surprised by that.
1: I don't think you can be at all, and I I think you need to take a moment to appreciate the fact that you know Microsoft does complete its fiscal year during the summer. So this is the end of the fiscal year, and when we look back on it, to your point, Dylan. You're looking at 211.9 billion dollars with a B, you know, during that fiscal year. That's a huge amount of money. And let's make a point here: on if you are going to knock Microsoft for its spending, can we at least, at least appreciate that this is a company that, just by my estimate, Dylan came in at about 85 billion dollars in free cash flow in the last fiscal year, and that's. Before you take away, let's say any of the stock-based compensation, if you decide to cut them back, cut that number by say 10 billion for giving equity to employees, you're still at 75 billion dollars. 75 billion. So on, on balance, Microsoft is somewhere between a 30 and 40 percent free cash flow margin. I think they've got some money to spend, Dylan. I think they've got plenty! I think
0: they can afford those investments, Tim. Yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> one, of the, one of the big sources of that investment cash over the last couple of years has been their cloud segment. Yep. and This is a spot that Microsoft has, at times, been a bit cagey uh, about the size of, uh, especially when we zoom in specifically on the Azure segment. Looking at comments from management, we got a little bit of an update here. Azure accounting for more than 50% of Microsoft's $110 billion in annual cloud revenue. That is impressive, Tim.
1: It's very impressive. And they do, they have a segment called Intelligent Cloud. So that is not all Azure. It wraps in a lot of things. So you don't want to get too excited about Azure when you talk about the Intelligent Cloud results. Having said that, you are right. I mean, Azure is growing by some pretty big numbers here. Overall, in the quarter, after you adjust for foreign exchange, it was up 27% year over year. 27%, I should say. I mean that's that's a very big number and it's it's a segment of the business that continues to grow and it will be fueled by this idea that we will have AI workloads that are run in the cloud and they are largely run on Microsoft data centers that are backed by Microsoft Azure. This is a big piece of the business. It's going to continue to be a big piece of the business. No one should be surprised if that ratio keeps moving higher here because it's just the biggest opportunity right now. Anything that is cloud at Microsoft is really focused on enterprise, which means big in data centers, big workloads, big jobs that require big computers and a lot of storage. So this is going to be a bigger segment, Dylan I I I applaud Microsoft for investing
0: in it. Yeah, I know that some people have been disappointed a little bit with the deceleration we've seen in cloud revenue. Sure. But I do think it's worth reminding people 27% year over year growth rate, that's a triple, that's a double in three years. You know, we we need to keep those proportions in mind. This is going to be a much larger segment, even at some of these reduced growth rates that we're seeing.
1: No doubt. No doubt. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't be too surprised, but I wouldn't bet on it if I were an investor. If we see that segment start to reaccelerate over the next 18 to 24 months, just because of the demand on the AI side of the equation, long term, I think you could model. For somewhere between 15 to 20% growth for several years, there's probably going to be a bump, maybe a little bit of acceleration before it levels off again. And that's fine. I mean, we can expect it to be volatile, but to your point, Dylan, this is a durable piece of the business. And it would really be malpractice if Microsoft wasn't investing in it again. And again, I'll just say somewhere between a 30 and 40% free cash flow margin, if you're not excited about that i i don't
0: think i can help you tim you mentioned ai so i'm going to take the bait here we can't talk about tech earnings and microsoft earnings without without hitting the topic it seems like from the market's perspective there's a little bit of hurry up and wait with AI and the way that we're digesting these results generative AI has come in in such a such a visible way for so many people that i think it's kind of pushed expectations a little bit the reality is this is a space that people are going to be investing in heavily and it's going to be hard for things to materialize for a while it seemed like that's what we got from microsoft in the commentary
1: is anyone actually surprised by that i mean that that shouldn't be a surprise like the history of tech is very clear everything that Becomes an overnight sensation had 10 to 20 years in the making. And that is what's happening here as well. So, just because there is a lot of pent up demand and we're going to run a lot of algorithms, there's so much work to do, particularly in software, to figure out how to optimize AI. Like, it's not really a massive hardware problem. There will be some serious hardware investment. There's no doubt. There's going to be a lot of investment. In leveraging clouds like Azure in order to bring compute power to bear on big AI problems. But there's going to be even more investment, Dylan, in kind of figuring out. How to structure data sets, make them more interesting, invest a lot in software, create a lot of tools to make AI more functional over time. This is a multi-year process that's that's underway right now. So yeah, hurry up and wait. It's a good way to put
0: it. One company that might have a thing or two to say about AI, Tim is Alphabet. Company also reported, got some results from them posting revenue and earnings ahead of expectations, a similar story to Microsoft. Top line grew 7% year over year, but different outcome. Shares up 6% today as the market's digesting these results, Tim.
1: Well, they beat re- I mean, they had a good forecast and like Microsoft in the present quarter, they beat results, but there's some positives in the in in looking ahead here. One of the positives you can see how Alphabet in the coming quarters is going to be a lot more profitable, Dylan. And and here's the number to pay attention to, $2 billion, $2 billion in one-time costs that are being absorbed right now in in other bets and other part of i mean it's basically it's corporate restructuring they did a lot of layoffs it's pretty heartbreaking the number of people they let go and just massive cost cuts and so they absorbed that 2 billion dollar hit and once you factor that out in future quarters you're going to see a much more profitable alphabet overall but right now it's still generating what 29% operating margins so just think about that for a second and then apply, you know, what we're going to see in the future here. This is a business that's getting healthier. I'm not too surprised, Dylan, that you know, an investor can look at this and say, wow, okay, this business is going to be better. I think I want a piece of that. We've been waiting for this, honestly. We've been waiting for a more efficient alphabet. And here we go. It's coming.
0: I think one of the other reasons you have to look at the results from Alphabet and be encouraged is this is all happening with 3% year-over-year growth right. for their advertising business, which we know is just not going to be the status quo. It's been the case for the last couple quarters, but I have to imagine as we you know, get into a situation where companies are a little bit more comfortable spending on marketing and we hit that holiday season, that number is going to start climbing a little bit.
1: You wouldn't expect YouTube to have another quarter of year over a year 4% revenue growth. That seems unlikely that we're going to see a lot of that, particularly like you said, heading into the holiday season. I, I would agree with you. and Despite some of those headwinds in the advertising business, this is another company. Alphabet generating about $21.5 billion in free cash flow for the quarter, about $15 billion if you take out the stock-based compensation, so not quite as cash-generative generative as Microsoft is, but on a run rate of depending upon how you calculate free cash flow somewhere between 80, 60 and 80 billion dollars again, that's a lot of money for a, a company that has well over 100 billion dollars on the balance sheet right now.
0: You mentioned their focus on efficiency. and When I think of efficiency in Alphabet, I generally think of one person, and that is Ruth Porat, the company's CFO. With the earnings update, Tim, we found out that she'll be leaving the CFO role to become president and chief investment officer. How are you processing that news?
1: I mean, poor one out for Ruth in in a in one sense because she's been CFO since May 2015 so has overseen one of the most impressive tech stories of the last 50 years. I mean, that is it it, it really is incredible, you know, what uh, Google and Alphabet have has achieved during that time. I think, but the other thing that's interesting to me is I mean, how'd you like to have $118 billion to play with and be the chief investment officer? I mean, that sounds pretty good. I think it sounds like a fun job. That sounds like a fun job. So there is a lot to do. I mean, for as much as I celebrate Ruth Porat, here's where the hot take comes in. For all of that money, Alphabet has probably been one of the worst. In terms of putting just excess capital to work in a way that has been transformative for the business, I mean, I am an alphabet shareholder. I've been an alphabet shareholder for years. But, Dylan, I can't tell you how long it's been that Google has had over $100 billion on their balance sheet. They've invested in other bets, they've invested in some things, but have they really? transformed the business in a way like with all of that money what could they have done that would really transform the business now they've built google cloud and google cloud is getting better and it is getting more profitable but i i think this has probably been one of the most capital intensive but also wasteful businesses over those years. So it'll be really interesting to me what does she do now? Does she make other bets a lot more efficient? Do we make more strategic investments in other bets? One of the other things they said during the call here, or I, I guess I should say in the press release, Dylan, is that there are opportunities to be just thinking broadly about where can Alphabet invest in markets in which are underinvested? right now so what can they do with money in in that way so i i'm hopeful that what this means is that a company that has generally been kind of inefficient with being you know having transformative amounts of money but not really efficiently deploying that money maybe they'll get there and do some things that are just incredible and we just are yet to see what they'll be
0: Tim, I want to ask you one thing before we wrap up, and that's, you know, we we look at these big tech companies as kind of an indicator of what's going on yep. in their industries, and the narrative in the space for most of the year has been cost cutting, efficiency, and then what can we do to hang our hat on something AI related? Do you see those trends being kind of the dominant things that people are paying attention to this earnings season or do you see anything else emerging?
1: I have said on on Motley Fool Live in the show that I do with, with Tim White. We've been talking on this week in tech about this idea that there will be a bigger emphasis on data and big data sets, and that there's probably going to be some gravitational pull towards companies that actually are attracting highly useful, highly valuable data and that, that'll be an indicator of value. And I think we're going to see more of that. You'll you'll see more companies doing that. But for the most part, yeah, I think it's going to be the, the themes that you're talking about.
0: For the record, Tim, I think focusing on large data sets is a way to say AI without saying AI. I think you're probably right. <laughs> Market on the Bingo Cards listeners. Uh, Tim Byers, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Dylan. Tim mentioned Motley Fool Live. A reminder that Motley Fool Live is our premium daily live stream. and You can catch Tim Byers and our colleague Tim White talking tech Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern at live.fool.com if you're a Motley Fool premium member. We've got more Motley Fool money ahead. Match Group and Bumble have millions of paid users, but how many of those daters are sticking around for a long time? Mary Long cut up with Motley Fool contributor Ryan Henderson to discuss the business of dating apps.
2: What does it cost to run a dating app? Does the industry see pretty wide margins, or
3: depends on the size. So the biggest costs are engineering talent, really. I mean, if you think about like trying to start it yourself or something like that, you're you're going to pay upfront for to develop the app. That's you know big fixed cost, and then you're going to have to market it. There's a lot of marketing that needs to be done in the early days, and if you go back and look at the history of Tinder and Bumble and hinge grew a little more organically but if you look at those they were going out to college campuses and they were like doing boots on the ground marketing like get on this app and, you know and college campuses are kind of this ideal place for it because it's kind of its own like niche geography you can kind of hyper localize but that those are the two big costs and then as you scale the incremental costs or the variable costs to signing up a user are tiny i mean you pay app store fees you probably pay the payments processors, so MasterCard and Visa, but really there's not a lot of cost. And so Tinder reportedly has, and Tinder's the largest one in the world, reportedly has 50% operating margins. I mean, it's it's a very profitable business when you get to that level because like a social media, it tends to have a network effect where if you're single and, and you're a dater, you want to be on the platform where there's other daters. You don't want to be on this one where you're like waiting to find just an account for like a week or something you want to filter through as much possible potential dates as as possible. So it, the platform really starts to sell itself and you see that in some of the numbers. So for Match Group's case in 2014 sales and marketing accounted for 38% of their revenue. Today it accounts for 17% and the the, the apps much bigger, both Tinder and Hinge and they're they're really pouring a lot of money still into marketing. So yes, as these apps get big, they get really profitable, but you kind of have to climb that wall of scale first and there's only i think a few apps that can really say that they're at that threshold where the platform sells itself and i think it's tinder bumble and hinge depending on the geography there's there's others but those are kind of the big ones here in the US
2: and you mentioned the importance of the network effect when it comes to a dating app and when it comes to competition the story of bumble kind of looks like the story of David versus Goliath, because Match Group is huge and owns Tinder, right? The the biggest dating app in the world. And comparatively, Bumble's market cap is quite small. Does Bumble have to overtake Match Group in order to be a success?
3: I don't think so i think the pie is they have i believe they've eaten some share in terms of the market overall but i think the pie is growing enough that it's not a winner take all scenario you know there could be a lot of winners here for to kind of give some numbers on it, there was a study done i think by stanford business school in kind of the two and it and it showed throughout the decades and anyone that's familiar with online dating might have seen this chart before around 2007 2008 20% of heterosexual couples in the United States met online. Ten years later, that number jumped to forty percent, and a lot of the respondents, I'm willing to bet, were lying. The ones that said they met in a bar, they met in a restaurant. Sure, that's when they first physically met, but I'm sure they met online. And it's even more popular in same-sex uh, relationships. They it's climbing and climbing here in the U.S. And then in more less developed markets, it's. Kind of more stigmatized, like it's. I think in the U.S. at this point there isn't that much of a stigma around it, but in other markets it it really is still there. And so I think as that kind of comes down, there's a lot of room to grow internationally. And Bumble's doing that, and and they kind of have good counter positioning I think against Tinder because it kind of they, they brand themselves as kind of the safe platform, very women centric, women message first, and so that's how they brand themselves and i think it works well for them and i think they're they have plenty of room to grow users and if you just look at the last 5 years hinge bumble and tinder have all grown steadily and and their market shares have been relatively flat i think bumble's kind of eaten share a little bit and hinge has too but tinder's kind of the as you mentioned the elephant in the room so it's got like a lot of users to shed i guess
2: When it comes to Bumble specifically, what is the growth story or the growth strategy? Is it to expand internationally, to acquire smaller startup dating apps, or to just kind of keep eating into the market share of the Goliaths that we've mentioned?
3: You know, reinvesting back into the business, the the Bumble platform specifically, is probably where they're getting the most attractive returns and just like, you know, probably app store marketing that kind of thing. At this point the marketing is probably limited in terms of what they need to do because so many people are already used to the platform. A lot of it is international growth that they are One of the top apps in a lot of European markets. But I worry that they, I don't necessarily want to see them try to become a house of brands like what Match Group has done, because they've done that now with Badu, which ended up being a pretty poor acquisition looking back on it. I think part of that was maybe for the diversification part. And it's just, it's kind of this, it's losing its thrill, I think, in its most dominant market. So, They they don't have great acquisition history so far. Fruits. They acquired Fruits, I want to say like a year ago. It was a tiny acquisition. It's really more of like a concept than a business at this point. And it's really only popular in France. Maybe they can specific. Yeah. And it's it's just like it's really kind of gimmicky. Like the app doesn't work that well. So maybe they can, you know, throw their back end on it and kind of have better tech and you know, better resources. But I, I think ultimately the best thing they can do is brand yourself as the safe platform, really focus on kind of user verification and making sure that you're treating your users well, because that's where Tinder has lost some share is is in being kind of this not so safe platform. So really, you know, brand it that way. And then they've got other avenues like Bumble BFF, where they've kind of, I don't know if it'll necessarily move the needle financially, but it's a way to kind of be a differentiator in what's an otherwise pretty commoditized market.
2: Yeah, and even if someone isn't paying for Bumble BFF, if Bumble can win over that user and then get them to use the dating app and monetize them that way, I can see that to being a fruitful path. So Bumble IPO'd just before Valentine's Day, very fittingly, in 2021, which lest anyone has forgotten, was still pretty peak pandemic. Since then, Bumble's share price has tumbled like more than 70%. Can this company still win in a world where people are going back out into the world and maybe stepping away from their community? computers a little bit or their phones?
3: Yeah, I think I think the answer is yes, just because the long-term trends that I kind of talked about earlier, you know, it's still, it kind of has this weird effect too, where like the more people that are dating online, the harder it is to almost date a person because you get like, there's this sense that there's all these online options, I guess. So it's like this, you know, back in prior to the internet, maybe there would have been, the, the clock would have started ticking a lot quicker for people and may, they wanted to get out there and date and they felt like they had to go. Talk in person, whereas you kind of don't get that sense anymore. I don't think because there's the option online, and so I think it'll continue to grow in the U.S., albeit kind of not as fast as the developed or the emerging markets. And then, as I mentioned, internationally, I think there's just a huge market to go after as hopefully the stigma starts to come down. But so I think there'll be a lot of ways to win for them, plenty of room to grow, and and different also there i think there's pricing power in one way or another there, and it's not necessarily like just a pure pricing increase but like can you can you mix the pricing plans so that ultimately it's revenue a creative like can you do a 5 day plan that's 15 bucks or something like that can you do shorter plans higher spend that kind of thing and I, they've done a really good job of that because Paying users for Bumble is up like three X since the IPO, and average revenue per paying user is up just barely. But I mean, that's what they're doing is they're they're adjusting their pricing plans so that they can get as many pairs and still get a, a healthy revenue of revenue from each pair.
0: People on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. That's today's Motley Fool Money episode. We'll catch you tomorrow!